Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Dave. And today's episode is with the wonderful Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's a cognitive neuroscientist, author, speaker known for her work in the field of... Author the m- of 19 books. Yeah, on the field of the mind-brain connection and cognitive psychology. That all sounds like big words, but it's really, we go to the gym to flex our muscles, to be stronger. And all her work is about how we can build more resilience in our mind, in our brains, so that life is better. She really is incredibly smart. We break down the mind-brain connection, the separation between what is the mind and what is the brain. We talk about how we can deal with kind of mind mess, as in the mess of our thought process and how we can adapt and adjust and her five-step process. Yeah, she's a wonderful five-step process, which is really applicable to your daily life of how you can better deal with all the stuff, the challenges that life throws at you. Very practical, very worthwhile. Without further ado, we give you the wonderful Dr. Caroline Leaf. Well, well, it, well, it's really wonderful to have you here today. It really, really is. And I guess it's a topic so dear to our heart. You know, I, I believe we're going to cover all sorts of different things. You know, we'll talk about for as adults and as children and all sorts of things, how the mind and the body and, and happiness and mental health and the whole aspects of it. And I guess a place I'd love to, to kind of jump off, and it's more like an opening statement really, is um, like we live so much of our life in the external. Like we're looking for you know, things to, we're looking for a body to be better, our skin to look better. We're looking for, you know, when I get this house, when I get this job, when I get this car, when I get, when I, you know, external, external, external. If this person tells me I'm great, if someone gives me attention, if I become famous, you know, we're looking outside of ourselves. Yet I think so much of our reality is internal. It's in our mind. And yet none of us get a manual of how to, you know, how do we manage this crazy mind we have? This, you know, this, this tool which can be used for good or bad. And I guess you've spent a lot of work understanding this instrument which each of us has. And um, yeah, that's my opening point. As I said, it's not a question. It's more a... I love it. And you set the stage beautifully because it is so relevant. You know, we've had such a emphasis for so many years on the external. And, you know, it's okay. It's nothing wrong with focusing on the external, but when it's to the exclusion of the internal, which is actually the most important part, that's when we see a lot of the issues arising. And, you know, for thousands of years, there was so much work that we, there was such so much focus in the philosophy and spirituality of for thousands of years on working on the internal. So this focus on the externals in terms of achievement, the way you set the, set the scene is fairly new. And, you know, it's linked to a lot of different, I mean, there's a whole lot of different reasons that I can sort of lay out for you when and how and why. And But the impact is very evident in, in the fact that we are battling with our mental health. And battling with mental health is not something new. It's, people have always battled with their mental health. But when you shift how we look at ourselves, that's why I'm so glad you set the stage like this. When we look at how we function as humans, when we look at who we are as humans, when we change that, it will make the management of mental health, much, much, much more difficult. And that's what I believe has happened in the last 40, 50, 60 years, where we shifted from a much more internal focused, holistic human, the whole human context, life, kind of looking at humans to a very all right, productivity, what we can achieve, symptom, external, you know, what what are the what are the things we see that are breaking down? Let's fix those things that are breaking down. And that's applied across the board when it comes to ed- education, productivity, workplace, and then of course mental health. And mental health has been a really frightening bad story over the last few hundred years, but especially the last 50, 60 years, because it's been a shift from 
as I keep saying, from this holistic human approach to a very biomedical, symptom-orientated, you know, exclude you from your story, almost taking you out and objectifying the person and looking at the symptoms that the person is producing, like what is breaking down in the machine and then trying to fix the parts. And that has caused a massive problem. All the research shows it. And besides the research, we just have to look at the statistics and we see we're in a crisis, whether you're a young child or an adult, there's a crisis. And the crisis is not that mental health is new. It's that we're not managing it properly. And you years of accumulated mismanagement of mental health is going to lead to the crisis we currently have. But there's hope. Absolutely. That's, why, that's what I do. Absolutely. <laughs> I really admire the fact that you look at it, try to see beyond the label and look at the story. And it's quite similar to in kind of agriculture, agroecology, where instead of looking at weeds as in problems within an ecosystem it's more when one can read the landscape you can see a a weed is telling me something about the landscape such as if i'm in a field and i see a lot of milk thistles it's telling me that possibly that area of the soil has been contaminated and it's being cleansed and similarly you talk about in terms of mental health that labels such as calling something a weed as opposed to looking at the information it's like labeling something as possibly depression you're kind of removing someone from their story and that their story is a result of a certain incidents that have happened in their life and I wonder if we could talk about labels and how kind of this reductionist approach towards mental health can in many cases be damaging. Absolutely and that's a great example. I love I love the example of looking at the landscape and seeing the what the weed is the signal and that's exactly what we need to do with humans. When we take a neuroreductionistic approach which is what's happened in the last 40 50 years and I've been in the field nearly 40 years now and I've seen this happen. I've seen us go from I was trained to look at the whole person and we would never just diagnose and label. We would meet with teams of people, the parents, the teachers, the caregivers, the whatever the age of the person was. And there would be a whole lot of interaction, seven, eight hours of interaction before you kind of said, okay, well, maybe this is the direction we should be going. And yeah, you were helping the person along in the process. Now within 15 minutes, of a neuro, very biomedical neuroreductionistic process. Generally, in about 15 to 20 minutes, you've filled in and answered a few questions and you've had a label put on you. And so what has happened, and, I, and it's, it's, this is the simplest way to understand it, the separation between actual physical problems that can go wrong with the brain and the body, so like tumors and cancer and various different neurological damage, traumatic brain injuries, or people that have been had sports injuries or whatever, physical problems to the brain and body have been mixed in with life experiences as though it's one thing. And that is the problem. Now, we can talk about the mind-brain-body separation in a moment, but essentially what we have to do is we have to see humans almost as there's the physical side of what is physically going on in our brain and our body. And thank goodness for medicine to deal with that. I have many friends in the medical profession, as you can imagine. And thank goodness we have medicine, but medicine is not mental health. Medical issues, physically, physical issues with the brain and the body can cause us to have mental health reactions because if you've got cancer, there's a lot of trauma involved and that sort of thing, obviously. And if you're on certain medications that can change your mental health side. So there is that side. And, you know, traumatic brain injury damages the brain and it does impact cognitive and emotional and mental functioning. Those that we agree, but that is one category. And we have to look at that as as a category. And then we have to look at 
humans in life and how the environment impacts us and how what we go through impacts us and our experiences. And it's not about us, it's about us in the world. And it's not just about us, it's about us in the world and other people in the world and our decisions we make that impact others and the decisions that people make that impact us and politics and socioeconomics and racism and gender issues and, you know, all these things that affect, that are decisions made by people and groups of people that affect how we function and nurturing and all that kind of stuff. That's a huge, complex, ongoing thing. But it's that huge, complex narrative has been has has been kind of pushed into the other side. It's been made a medical issue. So if someone is experiencing extreme uh, identity issues because of growing up in an uber-religious environment potentially and they can't be who they really believe they are and that can impact all their functioning and so on, they're then going to feel depressed. They're going to feel anxious. They're going to feel, you know, it could impact how they form relationships and so on. That's logical. Those are outcomes of an adverse experience. But those are still big words. They don't really tell us enough if you feel depressed, if you feel anxious. that it's if you, you need to talk to the person to find out, okay, let's talk about what is that depression? What are you feeling? Tell me more. Where do you think it's coming from? There's a story behind that and the anxiety. So we can't just say depression isn't it. It's this label. It's this like cancer or diabetes or um, cardiovascular disease or an immune disorder. Those are quite specific. They are they they have been well researched. They have had a neurobiological or a biological correlate identified. In other words, you can say, okay, if someone has diabetes, we know that there's something wrong with the pancreas and insulin. Type one, type two diabetes is a difference, etc. There's there's a way of um, from the symptoms getting a diagnosis based on various tests. It's very specific, and you can take a medication and you can target that or you can take a lifestyle make a lifestyle change and you can target that and it can help to improve that that diabetes type 1 or type 2 obviously there's different treatments involved for both that's quite specific and it's excellent it's it's great and medicine's advancing all the time but you can't take that approach into someone who's had major abuse as a child or been in a terrible marriage or experienced terrible racism or living under whatever all the challenges that life throws at us and just look, forget all about that huge iceberg and just look at the tiny tip and say, okay, well, you have depression for consistently daily for three weeks and you you can't sleep and you can't get up and you don't want to work and you've lost interest and probably you have clinical depression. That's it. It's like a gift initially because, oh, okay, well, I've got a label for how I feel. There's something medical here. And it makes you, in one sense, feel maybe a little bit more comfortable. But then you open the gift and there's nothing there. Because now what next? It doesn't doesn't honor what you've gone through. So what we've got to do is look at the whole person's story. We've got to take the time for that person to be able to comfortably express their story, tell their story, and to be able to understand the signals attached to the story. So depression and anxiety, for example, wouldn't be the it, they're not the end product. They are just one of four types of signals that are telling you something. They're the thistle that you're looking at that's telling you there's something wrong with the soil. So instead of seeing them, oh, that's it, that is the the problem, the thistle. No, it's not. The thistle is simply a 
telling you that there's something wrong with the soil and that's why it's growing there and something's needed and it's, it satisfies that, but then it could choke other areas of one's life. So you've got to understand the whole context. That's very different to just saying that's bad, remove it, mm. eliminate it, put it out the ground because you haven't resolved the problem. The thistles will keep coming back. And that's the issue. We have to deal with it. Yeah, so look, it, really, it really is information. Sorry, like it really is information. Like it's information that we're getting back. Like if someone feels anxious or are feeling depression, it's a feeling. And just like I feel happy. I don't feel happy all the time. You know, happiness comes and goes. And I guess depression is a feeling. And as we said, now there's clinical labels for these things and whatnot. And sometimes that potentially could be an issue with people not being able to, you know, expand beyond it because there's a reason why they are likely to be feeling this way. Exactly, because if you're told that it's a an illness, what the research is showing and what actually gut feel without even research confirming, if you're told you have clinical depression and because you've, let's say that you've gone through a whole lot of stuff in your life where you're going through stuff and you go to the doctor, you're feeling that really down, whatever, and they say, okay, you've fulfilled the criteria. Maybe they don't even ask you all the questions and they just say that's clinical depression, label, medication. Boom, you're supposed to now be you know better. And if you don't get better, you go back. They change the medication or they add more or they increase the dose or they add another label. It's this endless cycle of going down a rabbit hole that is actually quite dangerous because it's removing the hope. It makes you feel, gosh, I've got like cancer. I mean, if you get a cancer diagnosis, it can really knock you because it's something that's very big. And obviously there's the mental health component, but it feels it feels so, so like I, like you stuck. Fortunately, there's things you can do and that can help you deal with that. But when it comes to, to things, something like depression, what the research shows is that by saying you have depression, this is a disease, it takes hope away from people. There's almost like, well, it's inevitable. It's in my genes. It's in my body. There's, I've got a broken brain. There's something wrong with me. Where's the hope? And that reduces people's ability to, to actually deal with the stuff because now they feel not only what they've gone through that led to the to the signal not symptom but the signal of depression which is something actually quite different it's now they've got a label making them feel even worse so what we want to rather do is say hey i embrace that depression depression is not a bad thing nor is anxiety nor is 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 panic attack nor is any of these so-called negative emotions there's no bad emotion Every single emotion we have is actually a messenger. It's information and it's telling us something and it's growing our character and it's it's, it's helping us experience the depths of life. And even though it's not nice to experience those, when we understand, okay, that depression is the thistle, it's telling me something about the context of the soil in my of my life at this at this stage. So it's telling me it's 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 one of many emotions, but that's it's attached to something. There's something going on in the soil that is that is causing that. So it's not the be all and the end all. It's not the only thing. I don't have to eliminate the depression to feel better. What I have to do is face the depression and read the information and the message and find out what it's telling me. And there's a way of doing this. And then from there, I can say, okay, well, now at the minute that you start looking at depression as a signal and say, okay, well, it's telling me something versus it's bad, I must eliminate it. Your whole neurophysiology changes, your whole psychoneurobiology changes, your hope changes, your ability to your internal stuff changes. And you look at this and say, okay, this is not who I am. It's I'm showing up in life like this at this moment for a reason. There's a big cause of. And then you start diving deeper to find out what are the other signals. 
and there's four different categories of signals and what are all the things within the signals and what are they attached to? Where do they come from? And what can I do about this? And that's a process. And that's a process that, that happens in a very ordered way. The brain and mind and body are very ordered and very sequenced and very they don't like chaos. And, and, and there's a way of actually going from that depression signal to the source and getting a sense of acceptance so you can have peace and then reconstructing, reconceptualizing so that you can accept that this is a response to an adverse life experience and that there's not something wrong with me, my brain, my genes, my chemicals. Those are just side effects that will may potentially happen. But the issue that I need to address is something that I actually can get a handle on. And that's more hopeful than just, oh, you have a disease. That's it. Take this medication. Because those medications are not medications. If you look at the research and you look at what the scientists are saying, and there's a lot of discussion about this Fortunately, it's becoming more and more in the public space. But essentially, something like an antidepressant is not fixing like it says it's fixing. Antidepressant, it sounds like it's anti the depression, like an antibiotic. An antibiotic is anti the bacteria. That's what it does. An antibiotic does that. But an antidepressant is not fixing depression. What it's, it's it, the implication is that you've got a low, you've got depression because you have the wrong balance of chemicals. And that if you take this medicine, this antidepressant, it's going to put those chemicals that are missing back and then you'll be fine. But that's not what actually happens. That's not really what's going on in the brain, nor is it, what, nor, nor is it going to fix the problem. It actually just is like an anesthetic. It's, it's actually a drug, not a medication. So it has a psychoactive effect. And so it suppresses the strong, intense signal so that it feels like your life is more manageable because you're not overwhelmed by these strong, intense signals. But it's taking away your ability to work through and deal with the source problem. So if you suppress something, you're putting a Band-Aid on the wound, you're putting, you're putting, it's like taking that thistle, going there with a pair of garden shears and chopping the head off. We haven't dealt with the root. The thistle will grow back. Good one. I like, I like the way you're, you're, you're tying in the, the farming approach. But, but it's the, the same way you, cook, you get pain in your arm. Like you got pain in your arm. Like I can take painkillers, which kill it. But if I don't actually deal with, if I don't, if I don't stop banging my elbow off the table, like I'm going to consistently have pain. Like, so it's. And exactly. I, 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 That's I, the principle. I really yeah. like your approach where you said like, acute conditions equals acute symptoms. And that's pretty much it. And I like the way that your approach seems to be a lot more holistic. It's kind of, instead of running away from the depression and going, I have this bad thing and oh my God, I've lost hope. Instead, it's turned around and going, what is depression telling me? And why have I got this signal or symptoms right now? And how can I look at it and learn from it? It's almost like to look at the relational aspect as opposed to the symptomatic, um, just reductionistic approach. Absolutely. And it's so much more expansive. It's so much more hopeful because essentially at the end of the day, you've got to live with yourself. You've got to be, and, and what I'm trying to do is help people be empowered, get in a pathway to empowerment, to be able to live with themselves and to be able to accept the, the unacceptable because there's things that we will, we all know that. I'm not I'm preaching what everyone knows. I mean, I'm saying what everyone knows. There are things we can't understand. There's things we're never going to be able to explain. We can't constantly seek after a constant state of happiness. You said it yourself. That we, you know, happiness is, goes goes up and down, and you, you, we're not avatars. We are humans, and we need to feel sad and depressed and happy and anxious and all the depths of emotion because that shows us ex how we experience the human experience. So to numb emotions as a goal, which is what something like an antidepressant would do, is in a, on a chronic level, 
which are ongoing, is not allowing you to be a human and to be sad in response to what you've gone through. It's it's healthy to be sad if you've been through stuff, to be sad for what you've gone through. It's not healthy to stay in a state where you're incapacitated. So you've got to, so sadness is never something you want to eliminate, nor is depression, nor is anxiety. What we want to do is get it into the state where it works for us, not against us. So it's almost like a scale. And the scale is in a balance. And as humans, we need to have a balance between the so-called healthy and so-called not healthy emotions. And I don't even like to talk about it like that. I like to talk about emotions. And all emotions are good. But what can happen is that, and they, you know, there's, there's the in the one hand, there's the emotions that are helping us experience the sadness and and the, and the, the harder things of life that are balanced with all the happy stuff. And then, but sometimes we don't, then the scale in the middle is managing. So now we've got this, it's balance, you know, it goes up and down and we kind of manage it and we keep it kind of going like this. But sometimes we don't manage and we don't know how to manage or we're not, we're told we've got a disease and our hope starts tipping. So now we start having this getting heavier than this, the, the, the more, the, the what we would call the sort of the, the anxiety, depression, that side of the scale. So it's tipping. So now instead of it working, keeping us balanced, we now start tipping. And when we start tipping into that state, that's when depression and anxiety and panic attacks and all those sorts of things can become overwhelming and feel you feel like you can't function. And that drags, drags you to another whole level of battling. And then people will tell you, well, the current model will tell you, oh, that's just your disease getting worse, or you're in remission, or you've got treatment-resistant depression, and we need more medication. And But that then keeps you stuck in that state because if you keep taking a drug, a psychoactive drug, and that's what basically psychotropics are, antidepressants and all those things, if you take them acutely, they're not going to really do much damage to you. But chronically, if you take them long-term, they do change your brain. They do, it's like alcohol changes your brain and it changes how your brain works and your mind is not your brain. And we should talk probably talk about that in a moment. Recently, we were at an amazing event in London. We were invited to, it wasn't sure what it's going to be like, but it was an event about flavour and taste. We found out that 70 to 90% of all your taste is in your mouth and much of it comes via a retral nasal pathway. Fancy way of saying, you eat food, the food comes into your mouth, as soon as you crush it, the aromas come up your retral nasal pathway. That's the back door up to your nose where you hit it and poof. And a great way to experience this is put a jelly in your mouth, close your nose and eat it. And as you eat it, there will be no flavour. You'll be chewing it going, there's nothing in this. And as soon as you release your nose, the aroma comes straight up and you're like, strawberry, wow! The event was sponsored by AirUp, which is an incredible technology and innovation on water bottles, encouraging you to drink more water. It uses sense-based technology where you've got to, you simply put water in their bottles. You get pods. They have a full selection of different pods. My favorite flavor is cherry cola. Not Go surprising. Uh, and I put in sparkling water. I activate the pod. I drink it. And the water tastes like cherry cola. It's Can amazing. You use normal water? Use any type of water, whatever kind of water you want. Really. I think the great thing is, one, it gets you drinking more water. We did a podcast with Dr. Dan. Cohen, uh, who's an expert in hydration, she said approximately 70-90% of people are dehydrated. Yeah, so it gets you to drink more water, particularly like I bought one for my mother-in-law. She found it very difficult to drink enough water. She loves the watermelon pods. I got her some watermelon pods. She activates them and she drinks loads of water now and really finds it great. So while we're checking out, we have a 10% discount code if you're interested in trying them out. The code is HAPPYPAIR10 on the AirUp website. 
Can I ask, like, you, I, I, I heard you tell a phenomenal story when you kind of started getting into this and you talked about you, there was a, a young girl who had a TDI or a, tra- a traumatic brain injury and where she was, there was concerns that she might, you know, never recover from it and her goal was to get back to school. I wonder if you could tell that story because that was like, I heard that and it was like the hairs in the back of my neck so it was like, oh my God, it's incredible. Uh, it was, thank you for remembering that story. That is, it is one of my, fa- I can tell you a thousand stories, but that is such a powerful story. And it, it really kickstarted my career in this direction because um, I had, I was very fortunate to have very good training in a new field that combined medicine, neuroscience, communication, pathology in various different fields. They don't even do it anymore. They don't do that combination degree because it was so intense, but I unfortunately got exposed to that. So it opened my mind to see things very differently. So while I was doing that research, in one of my lectures, um, I was the lecturer was telling us about how neuroscience, um, basically your brain can't change and that's it. And you know, once you're once you've had damage, that's it, there's no point. And I just felt that that was something that was not important. I mean, that was so that, that was something that was so important, but it was not being handled correctly. And I challenged this professor and said, hey, you know, we're always changing as humans, we keep having new experiences, so therefore. Our mind and brain are separate, but our mind changes the brain. So if our mind is always changing, then that must mean that the brain could change. And he actually said, well, go do research. It's actually being a little kind of facetious at the point. He was sort of saying, oh, you know, you know, sort of, well, go and do the research. It's pointless, but, you know, go do it. So I said, okay, so what area should I, as an innocent young student, didn't quite catch that he was being sarcastic, um, said, well, what area should I work in? And he said, well, traumatic brain injury. That's, there's no hope there. Once your brain's damaged, it's damaged. And there was very, very little research in that area in the 80s. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And blindly went into working on developing and understanding systems for helping people improve from traumatic brain injuries. And while I was doing this, this family approached me and they'd heard about the work because I'd been interviewed and whatever, and they'd heard about the work that I was doing. And they said, please, will you work with our daughter? And um, they, she'd had a car accident and long story short, her and her brother were driving and, and they had an accident. He was thrown from the car. She was thrown from the car. His was his accident wasn't his damage wasn't as bad. She was in a coma for longer than two weeks. In the 80s, if you were in a, in a coma for longer than eight hours, the family was told that the brain damage is irreversible and that you mustn't expect the person to come out of it. Fortunately, things have advanced and that's not said anymore. We know that there's damage, but that fortunately isn't said anymore. Anyway, these parents were not giving up. And they sat by her, her side day after day after two weeks. She actually did come out of the coma, which was an absolute miracle. And in when she was in the coma, she actually heard her parents talking. She, she, she talked about how she, in that two-week state, how she would hear her parents saying, you know, don't, no, don't speak negative over her. Um, she'd have people coming, they'd have people coming and reading her favorite stories and whatever. There was always someone connecting with her and she, she was in and out of a coma and that's what literally pulled her through. She was determined to fight back. Anyway, that's another whole incredible story. So the parents approached me about a year post um, coming out of the coma. And according to the research at that time, your first year is the most critical time to get any kind of intervention. And they did, they did as much as they could, but she kind of got stuck on a second grade level. And um, you're in, um, so second grade is the equivalent of sort of an eight-year-old. And she was 16 at the time. And um, she was very frustrated because one of the things with traumatic brain injury is that you remember how you were, but you don't but you are frustrated because you can't achieve that. So there's this, this conundrum happening inside of you and it leads to a lot of emotional and behavioral issues. 
And currently today, those tend to get labeled and they get medicated, which just makes things so much worse. Back then, it wasn't quite medicated as much, but they didn't quite know what to do with it. But there's a lot of emotional stuff. So they said, they begged me, they said, please, I said, look, my research is so new. I cannot guarantee it's going to work. And they said, we'll do anything. So they work with me three days a week, literally eight hours a week, three days a week, three to four days a week, the first few months, two hours a session. And then she worked on her own. So it was a lot of a lot of time spent working on her own in between. And within eight months, and the results were so incredible that we started immediately, I spoke to my university and we started doing a research study with this, with a student. And I actually did my master's research on this particular student. And um, basically, in a nutshell, within eight months, not only had she mastered second grade again, or whatever level that is, because you're in the, where are you? In the UK? Where are you? Ireland. 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 I'm half Irish, by the way. Wow. Good on you. My, my mom's, exactly, my mom's Cleary, my dad's Beretta. So I'm half Italian, half Irish living in the States. Married <laughs> 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 to a Swiss. Anyway, so... Um, that, that that would be the equivalent of her second last year at school. So she her so she had um, she her contemporaries her peer group were going into their last year at school. So she missed like almost a year and a half of education, and she was determined to finish school with her peer group. And within eight months, she caught up, finished school, got back into finish literally finished school with her peer group. And here's the the most amazing thing: she did better than she did before the accident. So with damage in her brain, she actually was doing better with her her all of her marks and, and scores and things than before her accident. So she was a very average student before the accident, didn't really like school, didn't do very well. After the accident, she became like a math genius. I mean, it was incredible. And I've seen this so many times how things like math, gets, maths gets so improved and languages and whatever. Anyway, long story short, she finished school she improved dramatically she went on to get a to, to get a degree she had a lot of physical issues and so on but uh, mentally she got back to a point where she got her emotions and things under control I mean it's like I've written a whole book about her and everything it's actually quite a um, quite a, a story and that motivated me to continue my research and I started working with other people at the same time and um, with traumatic brain injury and then I started trying different working in different fields working with people with autism with dementias with extreme severe childhood trauma um, that had gone through, you know, a lot of abuse, putting up your hand there. <laughs> so, so, so I'm just, because so you're amazing, because you, you've got so much knowledge that I, like, it's really clear you can talk in so many different directions. And I'm just wondering, like, having heard that story, I'm kind of going like, so what are the tools? Like, this sounds amazing. Like, I'm, how can I, how can I manage my brain and make myself have more of the positive experience and maybe label like, you know, I'm going to experience negative. That's just life. There's going to be anxieties. There's going to be downtimes. There's going to be obstacles. Like, how can I wire my brain so I can have like, how can I like we all spend so much time in the gym. People go to the gym. They flex their muscles. We we do all these things for a physical body. But our mental body, our, our mind and our brain, we don't necessarily know what to do with it. I'm just wondering, like, what did you do in those two hour sessions with that uh, girl? And what can anyone listening and ourselves go like, what are what are actual tools which we can do for our mental game to improve our mind game? And not just so I can be smarter. It's more so I can have a better life. Exactly. And I love that. Smarter. Intelligence is something that is organic. It grows. So if it's not fixed, so the smarter side, it's going to happen anyway. So what I did 
with her was I she her main goal was to try and get she was wanted to get back to finish school that was her goal even more than the emotional side she wanted to get herself back to school so I had been developing a system that had this really long long scientific name which I've now shortened to call the neurocycle and you may have seen from the work that I've done and and the books that the books I've written like this one and this is the most recent one cleaning up whoopsie why is it all blurry yeah okay, can't quite it's okay, cleaning up your mental mess for children, isn't it? That's the most recent one. Oh, I've got to hold it here. Oh, there, there we go. go. I tell your child clean up your mental mess. Yeah, yes. amazing. So this is the one. Um, I've written 19 books. This is the 19th. Okay, so this is the one. 19. Oh, my God, you're and incredible. <laughs> and then this is the one for kids. Um, and for, well, basically, this is for parents to help children. So this is to help a parent help their child. But the two together, you it's helping yourself and your children. So essentially, these all my work um, – stemmed from that time period where I was challenged by that professor and worked in traumatic brain injury. And I developed a system called the neurocycle. And what it what it basically is, is understanding the difference between the mind and the brain and how you can use your mind to change your brain. So it's neuroplast, it's driving neuroplasticity. And as you, I'm sure you're well aware, neuroplasticity is the ability that we have to change the brain. So we know that the brain is not fixed. The brain is changing every moment that you're awake. And even at nighttime, your mind is sorting out your brain. So your brain's also changing. So the fact that our brain's always changing, that's what caught my interest. So I wanted to know if it's always changing, can you drive the direction of change? Can you influence the direction of change? Because that's going to then impact how you function as a human. So big picture is that the neurocycle takes you from um takes you from the moment of how do I capture take something, let's say for example at schoolwork like like this particular this this subject that I was talking about. Her name is Lee. I have permission to use her name. Um, Lee was wanting to learn. So she wanted to get knowledge into her head. She wanted to grow her mind and brain. So she was using her, I trained her to use her mind to get knowledge in, in very sequential steps. It was based on the work that I had done on saying, what is the mind? What are thoughts? What is knowledge? And how do you get it in the brain? And how, and what is the relationship between the mind and the brain? So the neurocycle is a five-step process that has a preparation step. So there's a preparation step that prepares the brain for the work. So it tunes the brain in. So you use your mind to prepare the brain, to tune the brain in so that it can build, that it can, that you take that neuroplasticity and drive it in the right direction. So think of tuning in an orchestra tuning being tuned up. Yes. So just for anyone listening to separation, am I, I correct? I, I think it's great. <laughs> so I guess the polite way of going, hey, can I, uh, just, just for anyone listening, just uh, can I try to define the mind, the brain, just, just to check so that uh, that at least I'm interpreting correctly. Yeah. Yes, I've got and I've got some models here, so you can you can you can do it, and then I can pick up. Some Am I correct in assuming it. the brain is like it's it has a, a fantastic ability to process information and to store data, and it's think of it like a CPU, a central processing unit. Would that be accurate? And the mind is greater than that, and it has the ability to impact, influence, and direct, like almost like the director of an orchestra. It is the ability conductor. to... Condu- the conductor. The conductor of an orchestra. Would that be an accurate um, understanding? Very, very close, and, and well done for doing that, because that Seven is... And that's where I was... Was going to was going to it's very important that we go there because to understand the neurocycle you have to and to understand how to help yourself you have to understand the mind brain connection so yes you've got two separate things mind is not the brain 
and mind is separate from brain, but they're interchangeable. And yes, your mind is not only the conductor of the orchestra, but it is the it is the part of you that actually designs the orchestra, designs the ability to conduct, does all the planning before, does the whole. So it's all everything that makes you an alive human being. So your mind is your aliveness, your ability to have this conversation, to enjoy a sunset, to enjoy the lovely weather, to enjoy um, life, food, conversations, relationships. Without your mind, you did. That's bottom line. So your mind is the driving force. Your brain does nothing on its own. If I had to take, if I had to take, as here's a model of the brain. If this was a real brain, if this was a real, which I promise you it's not, <laughs> but if I had your brain in my hand right now and it was dripping blood and I'd just taken it out of your brain, Einstein, I mean Frankenstein style, we could stare at this brain all day long. It would never produce the ability that you, the three of us now have to have this conversation. A brain on its own cannot do what we're doing. So what is the difference? Our mind. Our mind is the thing that is using the brain and enabling us to have this conversation. So it's a life force. It is our aliveness. It's our ability to experience and drive the functionality of the physical. The mind alone is a physical concept, but it's also a metaphysical concept. Um, we can look use quantum physics and classical physics to define mind, which is what I do with my work. And we can use spirituality and philosophy and metaphysics to also describe mind. It's often referred to as the hard question of science, but actually it's the easiest question of science because the ability that we have to even say what is mind is evidence that mind is something that humans use to be alive and to experience life. So yes, go ahead. The, the, so the, like the brain, you can see in the human body, like you can take out the brain, you can touch it, it's squishy, it's got blood in it. Whereas the mind, there's no actual place. It's more like, you know, the way you'll hear in meditation, they'll say there's there's someone watching, you know, there's something back in the back of your mind, which is watching these thoughts and things. Is that kind of what the mind is? It's the it's the watcher, it's, it's the, the awareness, or it's the awareness. But it's not like, it's not like I can pull out my heart. My heart is, well, I'm not going to pull out my heart, but like there's a physical place in my body. There's no physical place for the mind. Is there in my human anatomy? There is. You're actually, you write, you you write, and you're wrong. Okay, so you write in terms of all the the first things you say, but there is a physical aspect to mind, and the physical aspect is very advanced new research, but it's also old research because it goes back to the quantum physics concept, which is very we became very popular in the 1920s and understood, and it's the most fundamental of all sciences. So basically, um, if I had to put an EEG on your brains at the moment. So if I had to put an EEG cap and and look at the activity inside your brain at the moment, we would see it would we would see electrical activity. So the mind is electrical activity, it's electromagnetic activity, it is quantum activity, it is waves, energy waves, it is gravitational fields. And what scientists are proposing is that each of us have our own biofield. And the and it's it's a physical thing. We can there's a lot of work in the in in the domain of entanglement and quantum physics and quantum mechanics and classical physics. Looking electromagnetics is classical physics and quantum physics. So mind falls in that realm. The physical side of mind falls in the realm of gravitational fields, quantum physics, electromagnetics, auditory sound waves, light waves, all that kind of thing. Those encapsulate 
a physical explanation. And each of us appears, and I say appears because this science is still being confirmed, although they've done quite well already. It's fairly, fairly, fairly advanced, but it seems like we have a biofield. How big it is, I don't know. If it goes, it's sort of estimated, it's sort of in our, in this sort of sphere, and it's through our body. So an EEG, if you're alive, I'm going to get a reading. If I put an EKG on your heart, I'm going to get a response. Your blood is moving through your body at the moment. It's being driven. Your genes are collapsing and, um, and, and, and in short, medium, and long-term ways to keep your cells turning over, et cetera, et cetera. So all the stuff that's happening is driven by this energy force, which we call mind. And if you did, your cells no longer divide. For example, while you are alive, listening to me, you're making around about 800,000 to a million cells every second that we're speaking. If you did, you no longer make those cells. So therefore, there's an, a very interesting relationship between this life force that on a psychological level is our ability to think, feel, and choose in response to life. On a physical level, is all this quantum physics electromagnetics, classic physics, gravitational fields, entanglement theory, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and all of that comes together and uses the physical, as you quite correctly said, the physical is this brain is a squishy thing that has blood and parts and the heart and whatever. All of these things work because of mind. So mind is embodied in the brain and the body. It's the thing that drives the functionality. The mind needs the brain and needs the body, all elements of brain and body. And it's the, because that's how it can then make you alive and express you. Otherwise, we're going to have gravitational fields trying to express us. So we collapse the gravitational fields and the experience of, of life inside the physical brain. It changes the structure, builds into the brain like little trees. And I've actually got some little, I have lots of props. There's a little plant and life literally becomes like a little plant inside of our brain. And when it's a toxic experience, it looks like this. Wow, you know, it's yeah, sort of like, good one. So it's physical. So, so it builds in the brain. So life builds into the brain in these structural protein chemical changes and in the body as well. Makes so it's changes. Almost like yes. an, it's, it's almost, almost like the driver, like the, the mind is like the driver of the brain. And sometimes the mind can be a, a very, it, not be aware that it's driving at all, you know, be aware that it's just, you know, mindless. it's happened, mindless. Yeah. And then other times there's really great drivers that are driving it you know, avoiding all the potholes and seeing the signals of anxiety and depression going, okay, well, maybe I'm out of balance. Maybe I need to calm down a little, may I, you know, or whatnot. Yeah. Well, just even, exactly. even seeing the true trees there, it's a bit like nature. You know, you can plant a tree and look after a tree and nurture a tree, or you can allow it to dry out and become dead. And it's a bit, it seems like that, that it's actually, the mind creates physical changes in the brain. That's the neuroplasticity aspect. So that's what we see is that this conversation right now at probably faster than 400 billion actions per second, we actually, scientists say it's around about 10 to the 27, which is an inestimable kind of speed. You are converting the electromagnetic um, light waves of the visuals that we see in each other and the images, plus the sound waves that I'm generating with my voice. And you taking, and the listeners and viewers are taking all of that energy processing it through the mind and putting it into the brain. And then the brain is responding electromagnetically, electrically, chemically, genetically. And that's what we measure with an EEG and with all the different um, fMRIs. And we are reading you know, blood flow and all that we is, is the response because the dead person, that's not happening. So yes, and then and it, it, all through the entire body. So it's, it's the responding. So yes, the brain is a responder 
to life. Now, if we have a toxic experience, like an abuse or uh, whatever, there's so many, I mean, there's just endless, all the endless examples of life challenges from one which is maybe not such a bad thing. It might just be an irritating traffic delay or something um, to at, at number nine or 10, which is a, a severe trauma. Every experience, whether it's a one or a 10 and in between, is built into your brain in this way by your mind. So your mind takes stuff on that physical and psychological level. You it processes it, makes sense of it, and puts it into the brain and the body, and then we respond. Now, we can drive that process, and that's where the neurocycle comes in. We can, we can, we have the ability as humans to, and this is what meditation and spiritual philosophy and and um, mindfulness, all those things are on the right track when they talk about how when we, we, we can actually become mindful of what we are thinking about, what we're feeling in our body, all of that is demonstrating the ability of us to have two levels of mind, which is a messy mind and a wise mind. And what we see in every human is this deep, intelligent wiseness that all of us have, which is our survival. It keeps us alive. It's And I call it, the well, in science, it's called the non-conscious NON, the non-conscious mind. And it's a driving force that operates 24-7. It's on your side. It's your ability to look at life and make lemonade out of lemons and to recognize the good and the bad and to grow and to accept and all that kind of stuff. And we see the, the reflection in the brain and the body. It's really interesting. The physical brain and body are wired, literally wired for love. I mean, it's like a, a, a scientist, the Nobel Prize winning scientist said those words, literally wired for love. And what that means is that the mind and the brain, the mind being this thing that we've just spoken about, is on our side and geared for survival, geared for wired for love. And we see that reflection in the physical. So everything about the physical is on your side. Everything is designed to work. So then life happens and it, you know, we have genetic issues and we have diseases and that kind of messes with the physical and that's why we need medicine. But the core foundation of how we function as humans is wired for love on a mind level and a physical level. So that means that if we have disruptions, so yeah, sorry, go ahead and then so, I can. Like I'm loving everything you're saying. I really, really am. It's amazing. And I'm absolutely fascinated with it. And I'm going, right, how can we get this practical? Like how do we, because I agree with everything you're saying, like wired for love sounds amazing, sounds wonderful. Yet when I walk around, like say I walk around London or any major city, I don't see, like I see love some of the time, you know, I see people having really joyous experiences, but I see a lot of pain, a lot of people kind of suffering. You can see it in people's faces. We're busy, where, you know, life is demanding. And I'm just wondering like, what are tools? Like how can we kind of, like you mentioned mindfulness, you mentioned meditation. And I'm just wondering what are practical things that you found in your experience that you apply in your life or that you apply with, in your books and in your teachings and in everything that you do, that are some of the basic principles that people can go, okay, these are techniques, these are practical things which we can do on our own minds to build mental resilience so that whatever life will inevitably throw loads of curveballs at us. And how can we best deal with, as you said, make lemonade out of lemons? Absolutely. And that's where the neurocycle comes in. So I was searching for that question you've just asked me has been my life's goal. How do you make this work? How does you? How do you make the science work? So once you understand mind is separate from brain, and we've kind of elaborated on that now. Now, how do I take that back to what did I do with that lead? That 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 story I told you. What do you do with the sad walking around London and walk this life life happening, the busyness of life? How do we manage all of that? So with our what we want to do is we want to tap into our wise mind, and we all get that with 
everyone talks about meditation and wise mind and blah, blah. So it's not something new. But how do we consciously and deliberately tap into our wisdom? And what? how do we influence, if we've got this, how do we make it this? And how do we get all to that? And that's where the neurocycle comes in. So that's been my life's work for nearly 38 years now. And I still do clinical trials. I don't practice anymore. I practice for 25 years. And essentially the neurocycle, and I, and I stress this, it's five steps with a preparation phase that it sounds so simple, but it incorporates years and years and years of research of looking at literally every technique you can possibly imagine that I've tried to understand and system, like from different types of meditation and, and different types of mindfulness and different types of therapy techniques and from Western to Eastern, whatever, and, and the whole philosophy of mind, brain, psychoneurobiology, all this stuff. And I wanted something that now I've got someone sitting in front of me and they're extremely depressed. They don't want to, they want to know the science is always great. People get excited and it's motivating. But yes, what are the practical steps? So the first thing is the brain preparation. And that is that covers all the meditation, breathing, mindfulness. Those things basically are your you and is an infinite number of combinations of how you can do it. I have lots of examples in my books. I have an app called the Neurocycle app of how you can do any kind of brain preparation. The point being is that you have to get your brain tuned in. You have to get your mind, you have to get your conscious mind tuning into your non-conscious mind. You have to get yourself in a state where your wise mind is going to talk to the is going to talk to the messy mind. Our messy mind is our modus operandi. So in life we're operating conscious mind is very messy. And messy by messiness, it's good. It's not bad. It's that we're trying to understand things. We're trying to do things. You're trying to understand what I'm saying. We're having a conversation. You're going to go from here, whatever. So this, what we want to do is understand that we can stand back and observe our messiness with our wise mind, kind of like an autopilot in a plane. You've got your pilot flying. You've got your co-pilot helping to guide you, and you've got all your instruments. That's the instruments in the autopilot are kind of like your wise mind guiding your messy mind. So when when you when you are, and um, to make this as simple as possible, the neurocycle is five steps of accumulated, all this knowledge accumulated, done in a sequence that drives the brain in the right direction. So if I'm now walking around London and I'm feeling completely overwhelmed by the busyness of life and I'm feeling like I've got so much on my plate and I just can't cope and there's maybe all these issues dealing with your boss at work, maybe there's relationship issues and you just feel it's all too much. How can I cope in this moment? What I can do right in this moment, even walking through London, you could do a neurocycle. And a neurocycle would look like this, something like this. Okay, I'm going to prepare my brain. The easiest thing when I'm walking so I don't fall over is to breathe with my eyes open so I can keep walking so I'm not going to fall over. Um, and so you can, there's so many different ways of breathing. My One of my favorite that really gets your neurophysiology under control very fast is to breathe in for three counts very deeply and then to breathe out for seven, but forcing it through like, like really forcing it out so that you can feel as you do it. I mean, just doing that instant bit of breathing pushes oxygen to your frontal lobe and you almost feel high. Do that three to four to five to six, even up to nine times. It takes 10 seconds. So that's 90 seconds. So you can literally for 90 seconds do that breathing. While you're breathing, you can, if you feel like it, you can add on as you get in the rhythm. You can say, think, feel for breathing and then choose as you breathe out. So now you're adding a little statement, think, feel, choose to the, the breathing. So you're breathing in for three, out for seven. As you breathe in for three, you say, think, feel. And as you breathe out for seven, you say, choose. You don't have to. You can say it in your head. You can say it out loud. You don't have to say it at all. There's just different layers. 
What that's done is align your neuro, psychoneurobiology and your neurophysiology and tuned you in so that you, you've calmed down the neurochemical chaos, you've calmed down the electromagnetic chaos, you've got your brain tuned in, it's ready to be driven in the right direction. Then you go into gathering awareness, which is the first step. And notice I say the word gather, gather awareness. Gather means to choose. I'm not just being aware of everything. I'm focused. I'm focusing on what I'm going to gather. I'm going to gather awareness of very four very specific things. My emotions in this moment. And you simply say four sentences. I am feeling, and this, and it's, let me stress that it's the sequence, the order, the tidiness of what I'm describing. When you follow that, that forces your mind-brain-body connection to tune into the depths of your wisdom and get you into a place where you can solve, you know, feel like you're in control um, of that situation, feel more empowered. So uh, you, you'd say you first focus on the first signal, which is your emotions. I feel overwhelmed. I feel frustrated. Fine, simple. Then you say, okay, how do I feel in my body? So what is the bodily sensation? Because the mind is embodied. You don't only build an experience into your brain as trees in your brain, but you also change the cell of every single cell of your body. We have 37 to 100 trillion cells. So I need to acknowledge how the memory story in my body. There's a lot of work about this, how the body feels things and so on. So you want to acknowledge that. I'm feeling a knot in my stomach, whatever. Then you want to say, okay, how is this affecting my behaviors? Well, I'm walking with my shoulders hunched up. I'm feeling like I'm going to explode at the next person who bumps me or whatever. So simple. Then you're going to say, okay, how is this affecting my perspective? Fourth signal, perspective. In other words, how am I looking at life at the moment? Life sucks. So now I've done four simple sentences. I've done the breathing, 60 to 90 seconds. You can do, you can do that breathing once. If you really, that's 10 seconds. So this thing can, what I've done at this point can take you anything from 10 to 90 seconds for the breathing. And those four sentences take you around about three seconds a sentence, three to five seconds. So it's not long that it takes, but you have created a total different shift in your psychoneurobiology, your mind-brain-body connection. I'm actually a psychoneurobiologist. That's what you'd call the work I do, okay? Then you go into the next step. You're still walking along, and now you say, okay, why? Focused reflection is the second step. Why do I feel this emotion? And then you answer yourself, simple sentence. I feel frustration and overwhelm. And even though you know it, say it. Say it as a little sentence. I'm feeling frustrated and overwhelmed because I have got a lousy boss and there's just too much to do today fine how is this making you feel why do you think it makes you feel like that in your body well it's tensions in my body and i can feel my whole shoulders now tensing up and it's because uh, um, it's it's really affected me in a big way here's a simple answer why are you feeling uh, how is it why do you feel like you're going to explode there's just so much energy in me i don't know where to put this now energy is never transferred i mean never lost energy is only transferred so if i don't deal with the cause of my frustration, I am going to explode at someone. So it is going to affect your behaviors, what you say, what you do, how you say it, how you do it. Then I can say, okay, why do you think life sucks? Well, this is just every day. Every day I'm feeling the same. This is just going on and on. I've just had enough. Great. You've done focused reflection. Four sentences. Then you're still walking. The third step is to write. Obviously, it's going to be hard to pull out your iPhone or a notebook and write. So you're still walking. Obviously, you can do this neurocycle sitting down as well, which is, but I'm just giving you the quick version. So when I talk about writing, I'm not just talking about physically writing on a page or typing into your iPhone or on your computer. I'm also talking about the fact that the brain is writing what you are going through genetically. 
So genetically, when a gene collapses um, as a result of an energy wave collapsing and an energy wave is carrying the information inside of you that you're experiencing, that's writing. So it's genetic writing. So it's writing these things. They write into proteins. So you make a protein. So in this process I'm describing, your right stage could simply be visualizing yourself. So pretend that you have a camera and you actually like so this is a movie you walking and you've got the movie camera behind you and you're watching yourself and observe yourself observe how you look how you as and you know what you've just said in all the sentences so observe yourself through that so it's like watching yourself and then as you're observing sort of pan out to the scenario at work and the scenario at home so you visualize then which is the right phase then you say okay and that can take you honestly you can do that in 10 seconds then you go to the re the, the recheck phase step four is recheck so now what i've done in my brain is i've pulled i've actually pulled this issue up into the conscious mind when it's something's in the non-conscious when a thought this is a thought the thoughts got branches and roots in a tree trunk the roots are the source of the issue and there's lots of roots. So there's lots of memories in this source, the origin story. The branches are the interpretation, how it's playing out in my life and how I'm seeing my life. And this is what's happened between here and there. So what we want to do with this process of the neurocycle is by preparing my brain with the breathing, by gathering awareness, those four sentences of the four signals, by reflecting those on those four sentences and getting a little bit of a why, by visualizing it with the movie camera, which is the third step. I've done, I've dragged this from the non-conscious. If you imagine almost like there's four balloons and each of those signals and stuff are the four balloons. And as I've done it, I've pulled it into my conscious mind. We know from neuroscience that the minute you are consciously aware of these things I've just described, you have now made the actual thought that stores the experience and your perception of the experience. We've made it weaker. So this is all proteins and chemicals and vibrations inside proteins. That's what our experiences become inside our physical. So now I've weakened them. In the non-conscious, you can't see them. They're strong. They're driving. And I'm just stuck in a loop. But once I'm conscious of them, they're weakened. And now I can actually look at them and I can change them. So the recheck, the, the up until this point, I've made myself conscious. So now I can say, okay, I know the know this this issue. I've described it. So let's reconceptualize and go down to the roots and see. Okay, what is the source? There's multiple sources. It's a combination of the just the the factors that are happening at the job. But what about the job? What is it? The people? Is it the work? Is it the type of work? Is it what are the details there? And at home, what is the details there? What are the what is the combination of factors that are? And so you're going to start going into the detail. And in that walk, you're now sort of three minutes into this thing. You can't fix all of that in this moment, but simply the process of saying, okay, there's a reason and I need to actually sit down and do some, I need to actually sit down and, and take stock and see what I want to change and how this is affecting me, what I can do about it. And why is that person at work always freaking me out? And why is this particular situation playing out at home like this? What can I do about it? So it's kind of the recheck is starting to see the origin story, the roots, and it's saying, this has happened, what can I do about it? And then you can't fix it all in that moment. And that's part of this process is nothing is fixed in the moment. It takes time 
changing a habit doesn't happen, and a habit is a pattern of behavior, doesn't happen in one 30-second or three-minute neurocycle, nor does it happen in 21 days. It actually happens in cycles of 63 days. So you have to work consistently over a period of time. So essentially what would happen is you would end off this little exercise by saying, okay, I know where this is coming from. I can get this under control. This is not who I am. Tonight, after I've done whatever it is that you do when you get home from work, I am going to sit down and start looking at each of these elements and seeing this has happened. What can I do about this to make my life easier? And that's step five. It's an active reach. And now as part of that active reach, I'm going to say to myself, okay, I can't do any more, but I've got to finish walking to my next meeting and I've got to get myself in the mental headspace for my next meeting. And so I've I've dealt with that and I've put it, I'm going to compartmentalize it now. I'm going to come back and deal with that this evening. So I haven't ignored how I'm feeling. I've acknowledged and I've given myself permission in a very kind way to come back and deal with that. Giving myself permission, we are so hard on ourselves. We kind of think, why can't I just cope? Why am I doing this? What's wrong with me? Why am I doing this again? Why am I still like this? You know, whatever, all the things we say to ourselves. It's important to give ourselves, acknowledge ourselves and give ourselves permission to be messy and to say, well, I'm not surprised you're a mess. It's okay. To be a mess is part of it. The, 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 that's, you have valid reason for being a mess. But you know what? It's affecting how you're functioning and it's making you unhappy. So we're going to work on a 63-day cycle. And you talk to yourself like that. And you say, I'm going to give myself some self-care time. And you know, we talk about self-care. Days. Is there any reasoning yeah. behind the, is there any reasoning behind the 63 days? Because it's you know, a neurocycle, as you said, only can take it can take 10 minutes and it's really becoming aware of what are the root issues under that are dictating these emotions which I'm feeling or this experience which I'm feeling. And the 63 days is that just kind of it typically takes a couple of months of being aware of these issues for them to kind of dissipate and become less, you know, demanding yeah, it's on a life. Slide. It's a good question. So, yeah, so the it's the science of habit formation and there's extensive work done on habit formation. Habits are seen as, as uh, generally have been, the research has been done on habits, have seen them as very simple things, mindless things, but actually habits are very complex. You can have simple habits, learning how to, you know, wash your hands after going to the restroom, which is a silly thing, but like simple things versus complex mental health behaviors. So when you've got a package of mental health challenges like we've been describing in this very simple way you're not going to change that in a very quick time it's going to take cycles so I've done a lot of research over the years plus there's a lot of researchers and we've tried to work out how long does it take for a complex behavior to be rewired in the brain in other words how do I take this pattern that I that is keeps coming up going back without being fixed and getting stronger so every time I'm aware but I don't do something about it. It goes back even stronger than before. And that's why I keep going on about being very methodological, what's the word, very um, systematic in how you approach this. So if you skip one of those five steps, you won't get the same benefit. This is the benefit of the science behind it. Okay. So essentially what you are doing is um, the 63 days is around 63, 60, it's around nine weeks of working for around 15 to 45 minutes a day um, for the first 21 days where the bulk of work is done where this is being reconstructed and shrunk and made smaller and you're building a you're healing the roots and you're starting to build a healthier version so eventually you get to the point where they are you've got a healthy and a toxic version growing out of the same tree out of the same root system if you stop here which is where most people stop around 21 days you could go either way so you can easily fall back into this versus if you can 
do another five minutes a day for another 40, around about another 42 days, you're going to shrink this. So it's going to become very small. So you remembered how you used to function, what used to trigger you, but this is now dominant. And this now becomes the behavior that you work from and that your mind, your messy mind will then listen to. So this is the wise thing, the, the wise mind being pulled up. So that's a basic thing for a basic day-to-day -day stuff. The neurocycle's application, the neurocycle is a process where you get your a messy mind under control and drive neuroplasticity in the direction you want it to go. In the case of Lee, we were taking the same process, but in the other direction. She wanted to put stuff in her brain. So we, were work, we, we did the process I've just described, which is going from the signals and detoxing down to the roots. So detoxing. You have neurocycling for detoxing, where you're working on an issue that's a pattern in your life, whether it's just a little thing or a big thing. Obviously, if it's a big trauma, like a 9-10 trauma, you're not going to fix that in one 63-day cycle. I mean, I've had some of my patients who've had severe um, sexual trauma. It's taken them five or six cycles, maybe even more, depending on, on um, what's going on and, and the extent of the of the heart's reached, uh, impacted their lives. But when you, so that's the detoxing side. There's also the building side and the building side is critical to balance. We don't want to just detox. We also want to build. So Lee wanted to learn how to grow information in her brain. She wanted to get back to school. She wanted to finish school. So we took her schoolwork and we took it the other way around. And that's where we took, where you basically would, it's her, whatever, whatever subject, history, whatever it was. And we would take a section and we would read a paragraph and then we would, that would be gather awareness. And there's, a, so there's, I'm not going to go through all the detail, but basically you take the paragraph and you would put it through those five stages and then you would build that into your brain. You would take the next little section and so on. So the neurocycle is a brain building technique where this is applicable in our day-to-day -day life. Let's say now you're walking along that street and we've just described the scenario. Now you suddenly remember, oh my gosh, I've got this great dinner coming up and I've got these I love these people and we're going to this Beyonce concert afterwards and it's going to be an amazing evening and um, you just have all these happy thoughts coming up. You want to grab that and quickly neurocycle through that so that you grow the happy thought. So it's very quick to just run through in 10 seconds, gather awareness. I feel like this go through the four, you know, the five steps that then wires in resilience into your brain. So we don't want to just detox. We want to detox and build and we want to learn. And that combination builds a resilient mind, brain and body that then as an, you can see, this is a lifestyle. This is not a quick fix. There's no, no. when it comes to mind, it sounds like, behavior, no it sounds like it's really deep, like neurological behavioral change. Like it's changing and the, the brain the power patterns. of perception. It's we're perceiving our environment and our relationship with the environment through a different lens. And we're choosing that perception. Being conscious of it rather than just it subconsciously going, ah, oh, I dropped my experience. coffee and there's loads of traffic. I feel bad rather than kind of going, okay, well, how can I look at this, this experience and kind of look at it and see how I can see it through different lenses? It, totally. And that takes practice because it's a skill that we, that we actually have to train into ourselves. And it's easy to train with the easy stuff. It's not that easy when it's the big stuff and everyone has big stuff and little stuff. So that's why we say to people, learn it on the little stuff. Learn it on the that the, the easy stuff like brain building, like building on a happy thought and master the system and then start using it on the heavy stuff and then just make it a lifestyle. I mean, now it's for me, I can be in a meeting looking at someone in a meeting and, and they maybe work me up when I'm triggered. I can stay totally calm, do a neurocycle in my head and carry on with the meeting. I can then... If I'm dealing with a big issue, which we're always all dealing with big issues, I'll then go work in my 
I normally do it in the morning when I'm getting ready. I'll be working on something. I'm always working on something in a 63-day cycle because none of that's we organic. There's you can have, you can go through an experience. You can neurocycle your way through, get yourself under control, do all the 63 days, maybe multiple cycles, and think, okay, I've got, I know exactly how to manage depression and anxiety and not let it tip that scale that I spoke about earlier on. And something happens and you are thrown back to square one. But the difference is if you've been neurocycling, which is pretty much just knowing how to manage your mind, it's mind management, you will get thrown, but you will pick yourself up so much more effectively and quicker. We are actually, it's because it's unmasking resilience. So every situation that comes at us is going to be different to the last one. So you won't use exactly the same tools, but you'll use, you've got this resilience now and you know how to draw on that more effectively. It's brilliant because it's a bit like, you know, if you look at faith, if people who have like religion, religious backgrounds and, you know, there's that those expressions which come across loads of faiths, which is do not judge, like try not to judge. And it's the same way with our experiences. If we don't judge them, you know, by labeling them a bit like you're saying, if you're labeling something as bad, yeah. good or depression, anxiety, whatever these their experiences and how can we look at them and kind of go, what are the signals? What is the information and how can I use this for the benefit of my life rather than it actually, you know, slowly destroying me exactly and and that's such a brilliant observation because if you you know i know working in clinical practice and just myself experience life and what people we reach millions of people and just the emails people send i know how easy it is for us to think oh to get stuck in patterns of rumination where we think what's wrong with me why can't i get this right i've done the meditation i've done the mindless mindfulness behavior i've done the neurocycle five times i've done the whatever it's so easy to get stuck and think there's something wrong with me. And the key message that I always tell people is how you show up isn't who you are. It's because of something. At your core, you're wired for love. At your, at your core, your, your neurology is wired for love. Your non-conscious mind's on your side. And if you look at Eastern philosophies and meditation and all that stuff, the underlying core of all of those things always comes down to L-O-V-E. It always comes down to love. Loving yourself, having a relationship with yourself. It's always that. That's always at the foundation, no matter what the fancy technique is. At the end of the day, we need to train ourselves like a skill to remind ourselves that that ruminating thought, that intrusive thought that keeps tying you down, that's your best friend. And as soon as you shift and say, hey, that's my best friend because that's not who I am. That's my best friend in the sense that I can look at how I'm showing up and see, hey, this is... This is not who I am. It's because of something. So therefore, it's okay. I'm still okay. At, at the heart of who I am, my value still stands. I just have this thing and I'm going to work on it. I have a system to work on it. I know how to get empowered to manage it. That's where the problem is in. That's a very different approach when you have this intrusive thought, which one could label as bad or destructive or pulling one down, but actually see it as your friend, as an opportunity for you to grow and practice um, this five-step process as a means of... Um, becoming, a, you know, the ability to make the most of what one has on this because beautiful exactly. journey of life. Because at your core, you are wired for love. Woo! Exactly. And you know, this is something you can teach two-year-olds. And that's why I wrote this particular book, which is my most recent one coming up. Teaching a two-year-old, two to, for two to ten-year-olds, but it's for parents to help their children. I've taught two and three-year-olds how to do this. So if a two and three-year-old can learn how to do this, obviously an adult can. And that's just the encouragement. And the biggest help for like a parent um, is to work on yourself because if you are no and you model you work on yourself and you model get yourself in a place where you walk in the door and you're frustrated or whatever and 
you shout at the kids, you can say, oh, I'm sorry, I had a bad day, whatever, and you run through the neuro cycle, you model for them. Okay, as adults, we can also have emotions, we can also be messy, but we can manage it. You then model that for the child. If a child's frustrating you or you, which they do, I mean, I'm a mother of four, they're all adults, and you know, but that's it's life. You you're going to react to your kids. You can then say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I reacted like this because of this. And you can model that management. And that's what's powerful. So in the in my most recent book, that's I don't know if there's if you there's time to talk about that. I can just Absolutely. talk about yeah, about kids because yeah. I think mm-hmm. you know uh, I'm a father of three children. Dave's a father too, oh, and technically okay. because we're identical twins, we're both fathers of five children. That sounds weird, but uh, genetically, that uh, being identical okay. twins, that's how it works. And just wondering for anyone listening who's a parent and going, "Wow, how do I apply this to children? Like, it's is it a similar process? Is it a more and I wonder and I wonder one part of it must be because kids more they follow what you do, not what you say. So if you are actually living out this on a daily basis where you are, you know, they can see your life is it's not always sunshine and lollipops. You know, the car tire gets flat, the dog ate your homework, you know, you, you get stuck in traffic, trip. you lost, you know, whatever, all this kind of stuff happens. And if you can manage this and be, well, this is just, you know, this is life. And obviously it's not this happens. But if you cannot be triggered and reacted by it, they're going to learn this is just how it is. Even if bad stuff happens, mommy and daddy don't get really upset. Exactly that. So that's why I'm so glad we spent the the bulk of this podcast talking about how we can use it for ourselves, because that is the model that you give the children. But you teach them the same steps. So what I've done is I created a character. Um, I actually created it years ago with a Disney artist, and we've had it updated, and we've got a toy, and it's called Brainy. I don't know if you can, I can actually take it out the box. It's easier yeah, that's to see. cool. Brainy, Brainy is a mental health superhero, and so that's basically what Brainy looks like. Very cool. Okay. Your so brainy. It's, it's very, very cute. And so essentially what Brainy is, is a character, cartoon character that helps walk the mental health journey. So is, he is throughout this book. So for example, there on the first, can you see over there? I've yeah, got to get pull this it back there. a little bit. There we are. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, we go. You oh, can see it there. Throughout the book, Brainy appears everywhere. And so all the concept of, of the trees, there you go. Um, you'll see the toxic trees and the green trees. The entire book is illustrated with Brainy. Um, so these sections where it's for the parent, and then there's a little gray block, and it tells you exactly how to explain a thought to a child. And a thought is like a tree, and then we get unhappy trees, and we get happy tree, whatever. So and then the gather awareness, there's five little pictures of Brainy. Brainy's gathering the trees off the branches. So it's very visual. So Brainy walks this mental health journey with you. And what we found, and the reason I did it like this, because I did it like this in therapy, and I translated this into a simple way that you can use this as anyone can do this, grandparent, parent, whatever, um, is give a child a point of contact. Because as you know, as parent, as parents, they don't have the same words and language. Obviously, it's developmental. But they understand a lot more than what we give them credit for they read body language better than adults they have got all this pent-up energy from things that are happening to them but they don't always know how to tell you that someone's bullied them or their siblings teasing them or that someone's done something to them that they shouldn't have done but if you give them uh, tools to tell their narrative and they know and they understand that there is this system and this character we have two-year-olds that will go and pick this up and take it to the parent and then they know that I need to talk to you. This is my, and, and you can have two of these or you can have other toys and you can get the child to, you can even, if you notice the child's being quiet or something, you can say, I see Brainy's very quiet today. Brainy's very sad. So the child's behavior, you just, you know, you pretend it's on the toy and you can get, can you show me why Brainy's sad? 
And I give you all of that exactly how to do that in the book. And that's gathering awareness. And these exact questions for how you can actually prompt a child, whether they're two, three, four, whatever age they are, up until 10, 11. And then obviously the older kids, it's much easier because they've got the language. Um, but they just need to feel safe to be able to express it. So that's what the character does. We also have a coloring book, which which we brought out as a part of the kit. So it's Brainy and Friends, and it's filled with all the scenarios that potentially, and we've got lots of different ones coming out, like sad, happy, with friends. So there's scenarios and there's a blank page. So they can also use this as a point of contact or pick up the book. The whole point is that with a child, you want to give them um, points of contact to start a conversation. You said earlier on, we dedicate time going to the gym. Or, you know, we go to the gym, we do our exercise, we focus on that, we get that. But with our minds, we're not doing the same thing. So we want to teach our kids from young that the same concept, you want to go to mind gym. So what we what works really well is to have an area in your house, if you have the space, to maybe take one of your walls and paint that paint on that stuck a chalkboard that you can write on it, or have a piece of paper. You don't have to do that, but this is I'm giving you the the ideal, and then you can work down from there, is to have an area in your house. My sister-in-law painted a chalkboard in her kitchen area she had a blank wall and she painted that up and put a little bench and a little little pretty little box and a cushion and she put you know toys in and brainy in the coloring book and all that kind of stuff and that is the kids even now they're adults even now they um and brainy wasn't even a toy at that stage it was just like this little thing that we had created um even now as adults <laughs> they will go to that wall and they'll write on that wall and they'll go through the process so in other words you dedicate an area in your house that you can come home from work on and you can sit on that little chair or that bench and oh this is where i had a hard day so they know that when you're working on mind stuff there's this movement to a physical space there's contact with physical things that then help you work through the process does that make sense yeah, yeah it really does. no it's very clever and just just i wonder can you recap the the five neurocycle steps so it was it was the first one you'll have to preparation so i'm breathing i'm kind of almost taking myself from a, a fight and flight to kind of a rest and restore process where, where yes. I'm, I'm calm i'm present i can actually look inside second one is to reflect so or to gather that's, no that's the sorry that's the prepare so you prepare and then you do the five steps so the neurocycle has a preparation and then you do the neurocycle so the neurocycle is the five steps so you're neurocycling so the, then the first is gather awareness and gather awareness is of the four signals and the four signals are emotions behaviors bodily sensation and perspective and there's even simple ways with, to teach a child perspective. You can use sunglasses. You can, and I give you tons of examples in the book. You can have a box of cut out pictures where a child can pick up a child who's a, a picture of a, a sad face and they can say, I feel like this. So it's the, or I'm looking at life like this. So sunglasses work great for perspective because you can have a broken pair and a fixed pair. And um, and a scratch piece, you could have different kind of levels. And if they're feeling just a little bit bad, they could put on the scratch pair. So that's how they're looking at life. They're looking at life that I'm not so happy at the moment, or I'm very happy, that kind of thing. So that's gather when the second step is reflect. Third step is the right step. So if a child's writing, they can then write on that white, that blackboard or in a little journal, um, or they can draw pictures. So the right stage, you can write physical words, you can draw pictures, you can enact, you can 
do a little play. You know, you could draw big circles on the ground. And, and, and what you are you, write, are you writing down about how you're feeling? You're going through the, the same four steps. You're just writing them down. Steps, the four things that you gather, yes. So you, what happens is that as you gather awareness, you, you, um, the four sentences start activating this and finding what the source is. So it starts linking it to the source. And then as you do the reflect, which is asking why, the who, what, when, where, why, looking for kind of this bit of context, that makes us even more, uh, moves more into the into the front of consciousness. Then when you write it down, you're starting to dive down to the process, how the person sees themselves, how this is playing out in their life, how they to self-talk, the no one likes me, my friends all hate me, that kind of statement would start leading to that and where that's coming from, that leads you, start leading you to the root system. When you write it down, writing brings chaos out of um, order out of chaos. And you're not writing, the writing and acting, drawing, that just brings what you, when you do it in that order, when you breathe, gather, reflect, and then write down what you, what whatever that brings up, the most phenomenal depth of um, insight happens where you start connecting the conscious mind with an unconscious mind and things start coming up. The kids will start playing in a way that we saw this all the time in therapy. Parents see this all the time. They'll start doing something with their doll that, you know, maybe that they do this and then, Oh, someone hitting brainy, you know, things will come out that that you didn't see before and that they didn't know how to express. Um, and then the fourth step is to recheck. Okay, so this is what's happening now. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to reconceptualize this? And then the act you you close off the work with an action, the act of reach. The act of reach is you can only do so much in a day and then it's exhausting. You don't want, you know, this is a few minutes with kids. Um, with adults, you can see 15 to 45 minutes max kids five to 15 minutes and then you want to end off with oh this is great work for today now let's end off with something happy let's let's do something let's think of a beautiful white rose or let's think of you playing with your puppy um and so you kind of finish off the exercise with you've this is what's happened now this is what we're going to do about it we're going uh, we're going to um, go and talk to your teacher or we're going to talk to a sibling, but let's now think of something beautiful like a rainbow or playing with your puppy. And it's like the full stop on a sentence. If we keep going, you drain that brain and you drain the body, you will increase levels of anxiety. So we want to have closure. So the child knows it doesn't have to all be fixed today. We can pick this up tomorrow. For today process. we can do this much. It's a great, it's a great um, process of awareness. Like it really is ultimately about helping you to become more aware of the triggers that... I think, it's, I think it's brilliant. It reminds me of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Byron Katie. It's like it's like a medical or neurological pers approach towards something that you could look at it through a spiritual lens, you could look through it many different lens, but it's the same way to bring much greater awareness so that we can enjoy our life more. Exactly. So you can apply Byron, Bar I'm very familiar with her work, the kinds of questions that she's very famous for, you can apply those in the recheck step. They work really well in the recheck step. You can bring in CBT techniques in the fifth step. You can bring in ACT techniques in the fourth and fifth step. So you can psychodynamic theory, um, all of that, you can bring in at any of, so it's basically a framework. It's a vehicle. It's a, a way that if you put slot, whatever works in, take the basic concept, and then you find your best way of doing that. You then know that you're doing the psychoneurobiological work in the right way. So it's it's awareness plus it's going beyond mindfulness. If you think of awareness, it's like when a plane takes off, a plane will fly, it'll take off. Before it takes off, you've got your engineers and their checklists and co-pilot, and then it takes off. All of that checking and taking off is awareness. But if you don't do something with what you're now aware of, which is what the neurocycle is doing, it's taking you through this 
reflect, recheck, write, recheck, active reach. If you don't do that, you, you've got to fly the plane. So the next the four, four steps of the active of the gather awareness, the reflect, active, write, active reach, re- recheck, and active reach. Fly the plane. The active reach essentially lands the plane. If you just become aware and you do nothing else, you will crash. And that's what the research shows. Mindfulness, breathing, uh, meditation, pure awareness of I feel like this. If you just do that, you pull it up. And then the person actually gets worse. What do I do now with what I've pulled up? So you've got to go beyond. You've got to fly the plane and land the plane. And you do that in little bites at a time. And that's where the Byron Katie questions come in. And the, as I said, all the different types of things come in. You're amazing. You really are. This has been fascinating. Like, really, and, and really so great reminder. Yeah, really, it's so important. Mental gym, mind gym, yeah. and it's but it, but it is it's more is than that because when you think of men, when you think of mind or mental gym, you might think it's something to do with intelligence. But this is to do with everyday experiences. Like this is to do with, as we said, your internal landscape. Because ultimately, you can have all the money in the world, all the cars in the world, all the all the good stuff which you think are going to make you happy. But if your internal world is not good, you're not really going to feel great. Oh, messy mind, messy brain, messy body, messy life. And on the intelligence side, you can build your brain so that you can use the neurocycle to learn. So for it as an education tool, I've spent years in education to work helping kids to learn and adults learn how to learn. So there's the intelligence side there as well. So you, you're doing both and you're building your resilience. So it's a system for internal work that detoxes and builds. Amazing. And grows intelligence. Amazing. So your two most recent books, that was Messy Mind for Children and Messy Mind for Adults. I, I think I've said them both incorrectly, but the um, most no recent problem. one is Keeping for children. Your mental your mental that's the one cleaning. that, sorry, it's, it's like back to front now because of the mirror imaging, but Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, that one came out about 18 months ago. And then this one comes out. This is, this is my most recent, How to Help Your Children Clean Up Their Mental Mess. So the two together are great kids. And then as I said, we've got the toy and the coloring book, just, you don't have to get those, but it just makes the whole thing easier to, to do. Very good. Well, Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been really inspiring and very enlightening in so many different ways. And yeah, I'm up for giving it a shot. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It was great. I loved your questions and I really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And thanks for riffing off our, um, our, you know, plant metaphors. <laughs> that was good. You were good. You were good at playing the game. Oh, no. It was good. It was it was fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Millie Caroline. Your star. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Mind just thanks again. Bye. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.